Hey guys, it is Ryan. I'm not sure if you know this about me, but I'm a bit of a fun fanatic when I can. I like to work, but I like fun too. It's a thing. And now the truth is out there. I can tell you about my favorite place to have fun. Chumba Casino. They have hundreds of social casino style games to choose from with new games released each week. You can play for free anytime, anywhere And each day brings a new chance to collect daily bonuses. So join me in the fun. Sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. VTW. Void. We're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus. Science proves quality sleep is vital to your mental, emotional, and physical health. The Sleep Number 360 Smart Bed senses your movements and automatically adjusts to help keep you both effortlessly comfortable. And it's temperature balancing, so you stay cool. So you're at your best for yourself and those you care about most. Life-changing sleep, only from Sleep Number. Don't miss our weekend special. Save $1,000 on the Sleep Number 360 Special Edition Smart Bed. Queen, now only $19.99. Ends Thursday. To learn more, go to sleepnumber.com. Life's full of things we can't depend on. Like the Irish weather. Predictably unpredictable. When you're cutting it fine, but the tractor in front is out for the day. No winner of this week's you-know-what. So much for lucky seven. But some things you can depend on. Like in home heating. Emo, Jones Oil and Campus Oil are now CERTA, delivering the same warmth to your home now and into the future. For home heating you can depend on, see CERTAIreland.ie. By 1998, William Lee Neal had worked his way through four wives and now was preying on other unsuspecting women. He had a pattern of charming a woman and then weaseling all of her money away from her while promising to repay them after he had access to a fictional trust fund. He had left all of his wives in debt, but his behavior was escalating. He had already scammed and killed one woman, and now Candace Walters sat with her eyes closed, waiting for a surprise that she believed would be money. As she waited, Bill used the axe side of his maul to break her skull, digging into the bone above her left ear. After pulling the blade out of her head, he launched it again at the same spot. Her body crashed to the ground, and when she was mid-fall, he hit her in the neck with the maul. This murder was more than just a means to cover up his fraud. Bill had a true hatred for this woman. She represented every woman who had ever hurt him, which in his mind was every woman he'd ever been with. Bill was going to make every woman pay for what they had done to him. As Candace lay on the floor bleeding, Bill stood over her, unzipped his pants, and urinated on her. This is Monsters. Blood spilled out of Candace's body, and Bill put her head in a plastic bag, then dragged her to the fireplace where he put a blanket over her body. Next, he pulled a mattress into the middle of the room, across from the chair that Rebecca and Candace had both died in. He screwed eye bolts at each corner of the mattress and measured rope for each eye bolt. Bill frequented many places in the area. One of them was the bar Shipwrecks, where he was known as Wild Bill Cody Neal. Some days, he would get there at noon and stay until close. 
Hushed rumors spread that he was a bounty hunter or even a hitman. Beth Weeks struck up a friendship with him. She had just moved into a new apartment with her roommate Suzanne Scott and wanted to set Bill up with Suzanne. They were to meet at the Sheridan Hotel, where Suzanne was instructed to tell the front desk that she was with Bill, which was supposed to give her preferential treatment. Beth was already there with her boyfriend Jimmy, and the staff brought them food and drinks while they waited for Bill. When he arrived, he took them to a different floor, which he'd rented for the evening. It was apparent why the staff was so accommodating to him and his guests, as he was an extremely generous tipper. Later, Beth and Jimmy broke up, and Bill started spending more time with her and Suzanne. While he never directly said where he lived, he showed them photographs of his Las Vegas mansion, and he explained that he couldn't live there because of the ongoing custody battle for his little girl. One night, they met Bill for a drink with a woman named Angela Fight. His connection with Angela was undeniable, making it confusing to Suzanne that he spent so much time with Beth. Beth knocked on Suzanne's door the night before her birthday and asked if Bill could wish her a happy birthday. She was confused, but agreed. When he came in, he threw dollar bills around the room, saying they'd use them to celebrate. Bill eventually offered Suzanne a job at his company, a mortgage business. The money would be substantially more than she was making at the time and would mean she would travel between Colorado and Las Vegas. She was skeptical when he said his lawyers wanted to meet her before she was offered the job, and wasn't comfortable spending so much time alone with Bill in a city where she didn't know anyone. After she said that she could only go for one night, he changed the trip to accommodate her. He swore her to secrecy, telling her she wasn't even allowed to tell Beth. While she didn't divulge the details, she later asked her roommate if they could trust Bill. Beth was sure he wouldn't do anything to hurt either of them. Bill invited them to a night out a few days before the trip. They met him at a nearby pizza place. When he got there, he said he was waiting for his truck to get fixed at the shop. Irritated, he ordered them pizza while they waited for the car. Abruptly, he knelt on one knee and held open a jewelry box with a diamond ring inside. He proposed to Beth, who was giddy and giggled before quickly saying yes. The pair were close, but nowhere near ready for marriage. Despite her excitement at the time, Beth told Suzanne that the whole thing was a joke. He called them a limousine, which took them to a gentleman's club with a restaurant on one side and a dancing bar on the other. As usual, he ordered for himself and the girls and paid for everything in cash. The girls went to the bathroom and he was in the dancing section when they came out. He paid two dancers to strip for them and when they were done he said it was time to go to the next spot. They went to another bar, getting home at 3 a.m. By the time he'd met them that night, he'd already killed Rebecca Holburton and Candace Walters. Nobody knew they were gone yet, but he used their bank cards to withdraw the funding for their night out. On the night of July 5th, he came to pick up Suzanne. They were running early, so they stopped to get a drink. Before they left, Bill wanted to show Suzanne a surprise he had gotten for Beth. He claimed it was a house. He wanted her to help him rehearse the unveiling, so they left the bar and he drove her to the townhouse. As he opened the garage door, he explained that he needed to blindfold her and duct tape her mouth in the same way that he intended to do for Beth. It creeped her out, but she knew how excited Beth would be to have her own home. 
Now that she couldn't see or speak, he took her arm and guided her inside. The house must have been in the process of being remodeled as she was walking on plywood. After a few steps, he had her sit, but the chair was much lower than she realized. In fact, it wasn't a chair at all. It was a mattress. That was when she knew that something was very wrong. Bill made her lie down, and full of fear, she obeyed but couldn't stop the tears. He tied her wrists and ankles to the bolts he had placed at each of the mattress's corners. He shouted at her to shut up, telling her that she didn't want to see him get mean. He opened the buttons of her blouse and put something made of cold metal against the skin on her chest. It was a knife that he used to cut off her bra with one swift stroke. He then moved lower down her body to do the same thing with her underwear. After quickly ripping the tape off of her mouth, he asked if she wanted to die, to which she said no. He commanded that she stop crying and listen to him. Then came the question, had she ever seen a human skull? Of course, she hadn't, and she would never want to, but that didn't matter. He took off her blindfold and left the room. When he returned, he was gently carrying something wrapped in paper. He removed the paper and revealed a piece of skull with strands of hair attached to it. He placed it on her bare stomach and crouched at her side to watch her reaction. Then he threw it across the room. Suzanne was at a low angle, but when she lifted her head, she saw two large objects on the sides of the fireplace. One was covered by a blanket, and the other was in black plastic. Bill lifted the blanket just enough to reveal Candace's leg that he held up for her to see. Then he dropped it, causing it to thump against the floor. Next, he informed her that the other object wrapped in black plastic was another body, Rebecca Holburton. Confident that she would not leave the house alive, she lay there while he covered her mouth again. He said he needed to get someone else. Before he left, he warned her that he had colleagues upstairs who wouldn't bother her as long as she stayed quiet. If she made noise, he threatened, they wouldn't treat her as nicely as he did. Burying her beneath a blanket, he left her tied to the mattress, with two corpses at her side and the others upstairs, ready to pounce if she made a sound. He left country music playing in the background to keep her company. A few songs and commercial breaks later, the garage door opened. Another girlfriend that Bill had during that time was Angela Fight. She was a kind and pleasant person who was a mother and very close to her family. Although she used to act as a mother to her little sister Tara, she would always climb into her bed at night because she was scared of the dark. She met her first partner, Matt Rankin, at a restaurant where she worked. Their relationship was turbulent. Matt had violent episodes where he'd punch and kick the walls, which escalated to him assaulting Angela. His drinking problem made his attacks even worse. They fought often, and during one of their worst fights, he punched her and tried to strangle her. She jumped off their second-floor balcony to escape, and he threw her stereo down to try to hit her as she fled. Police arrested Matt, but two weeks later he was released and immediately reached out to her, apologizing profusely and promising he'd never do it again. She took pity on him and gave him another chance. He fulfilled his promise at first, but it didn't last. They were stuck in the same pattern, where, for a while, he was overly loving, showering Angela with gifts and bombarding her with apologies. Things would be okay for a while, but something would always make him snap. 
The police would be called and they'd arrest him, but then he'd be released and he'd do the same thing again. With lucky landslots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. Dearly beloved, we are gathered here today to... Has anyone seen the bride and groom? Sorry, sorry, we're here. We were getting lucky in the limo and we lost track of time. No, Lucky Land Casino, with cash prizes that add up quicker than a guest registry. In that case, I pronounce you lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Daily bonuses are waiting. No purchase necessary. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Angela became pregnant and in June of 1993 gave birth to her son, Kyle. Not even having a baby together could stop Matt from hurting her. She adored her son, spending all of the time she could with him. She was also studying to become a dental assistant, pouring herself over her textbooks at night while rocking Kyle in her lap. The episodes happened more frequently, going from every few months to every few weeks. Tara pleaded with her to leave, but she kept saying she loved him too much. She found out she was pregnant again, giving birth in April of 1996 to a girl she called Kayla. After getting certified as a dental assistant, she struggled to hold down a job. Matt's beatings were frequent and she couldn't work the day after. With all of his arrests, he had to go to court a lot and she'd have to go with him. Finally, in January of 1998, after Matt hadn't been home for a week, she packed up the car and took the kids to her new apartment in the metro area of Denver. The apartment was closer to her family and she got a job at a nearby dive bar. She eventually got a restraining order against Matt and began to regain her independence. At the bar, she made friends with a man named Jimmy, who was once the boyfriend of Beth Weeks. He introduced Angela to someone who could help her deal with Matt. His friend was a bounty hunter who had connections to the mob and was once a hitman. He could protect her in a way that nobody else ever could. His name was Cody Neal. Bill was different from Matt. He showered her with presents, from flowers to dinners at expensive restaurants, and overpaid babysitters when they went out. Most of his life was a mystery. She didn't even know where he lived, but he supposedly had a ranch in Montana in a Las Vegas mansion. He played with the children, especially Kyle, and gave them gifts like video games and a dollhouse for Kayla. When Angela was at work, he would look after them, even babysitting the pair when they had chickenpox. Angela told her mother, Betty, he was a bounty hunter and had connections to the mob, but never killed innocent people, only bad guys. She warned her that if Betty or Tara ever met Bill, they couldn't mention anything she'd told them about him. Angela was delighted when he offered to buy her a house, but the gesture scared her family as it was too elaborate. Things got weirder when Angela got home from work one night and found an empty can of soda that she didn't drink. Another can was outside of her front door and her shoes were rearranged. While nothing was taken, she was sure there had been an intruder. Three weeks passed without any communication from Bill and Angela was on the brink of leaving him. Tara and Betty couldn't wait for him to be out of their lives. In the following days, Angela was uncharacteristically distant. She planned to help Tara get her house ready for guests since her wedding was coming up. She was supposed to go over on Thursday, but Matt was late picking up the kids for the weekend, and he didn't get them until later in the evening, so she told Tara she'd go over the next day. Tara waited all day, only for Angela to call in the evening and say she'd forgotten. She snapped at Angela, sick of being unable to rely on her. 
Angela promised to go over on July 5th, the following Sunday. She spent July 4th at her mother's house, and she told her that Bill had a surprise for her, which she was sure would be her new house. Betty felt a sense of doom that she couldn't place, likely mother's intuition. Sunday came, and Angela called Tara to cancel plans again. Angela was finally going to see her surprise that evening. Bill drove her out to the townhouse. Everything was ready for move-in except for the flooring, which he said was only bare wood for the time being. He blindfolded her and walked her towards the door. Inside, he made her sit in a chair in the middle of the room. He duct-taped her arms and legs to the chair, but she broke free. He tightened the tape and added more. She couldn't move at all when he ripped the blindfold off to reveal a filthy room with dirty dishes and rotten food scattered across the floor. To her right was a blanket with a large lump beneath it and another large object wrapped in plastic, like a mummy. A mattress was directly in front of her and there were ropes from eye bolts going from the floor to beneath the blanket. Bill said, quote, Welcome to my mortuary, as he lifted the blanket to reveal the bottom half of a naked woman and removed the rest of the blanket so she could see Suzanne Scott tied to the floor. The two women's eyes locked in terror. He sat in a chair facing Angela and lit a cigarette. He offered them each a drag, taking off the tape from Suzanne's face so she could have some. Angela was allowed her own, but she'd have to smoke it with her hands tied. He lit a fresh one and put it in her mouth. Life's full of things we can't depend on. Like the Irish weather, predictably unpredictable. When you're cutting it fine, but the tractor in front is out for the day. No winner of this week's you-know-what. So much for Lucky 7. But some things you can depend on. Like in home heating. Emo, Jones Oil and Campus Oil are now Certa, Delivering the same warmth to your home now and into the future. For home heating you can depend on Bill left the room to feed the cat. When he reappeared, he was behind Angela, but Suzanne could see him. In his hands was the unwashed maul, still covered in the remains of his other victims. He raised it and smashed it against Angela's skull. Her body went limp and fell to the side, but she was so tightly taped to the chair that she didn't hit the ground. Suzanne had to watch while he continued to strike Angela. And then it was over. Bill put them all away. Angela's still-burning cigarette was on the ground, which he picked up and finished smoking while he sat in his chair. Blood loudly gushed out of Angela's body, pouring like water. As a favor to Suzanne, he put a blanket under his victim and over her head to stop the noise. He put on the television and lit another cigarette, telling Suzanne that Angela was talking about things she shouldn't have been. Bill began to undress, removing his pants and underwear. He lay beside her on the mattress, untying one hand so she could touch him. After untying her feet and other hand, Bill pointed a gun at her. He stood behind Angela's body, still sitting on the chair thanks to the duct tape. He forced Suzanne to kneel before her body. He raped her and then tied her back to the floor. They watched more television, but he interjected to defend himself. His victims betrayed him, even though he warned them not to tell his secrets. They couldn't be trusted to stay quiet, especially not Angela, and he had no choice but to kill them. Suzanne's survival instincts kicked in, and she knew she had to play along with his delusions. 
She agreed that it was his right to kill Angela if he couldn't trust her. A smile crossed his face. Although Bill repulsed her, she requested that he join her on the mattress and hold her hand. She would know where he was as long as they held hands, which served her well as she was forced to lie there all night. When morning came, Bill untied her, letting her go to the bathroom and finally put on some clothes. They stopped for food and a drink at a bar. The bartender noticed that Suzanne barely ate and seemed really young. She checked to see if they were okay, to which they responded that they'd had a long night. After eating, they went shopping for a tape recorder, a movie from the video store, and some cigarettes. Bill drove back to the townhouse, but Suzanne begged him to let her stay in the car. He decided they would go to her apartment instead. Beth Weeks, her roommate, came home to find them watching a movie. He led them both to the kitchen and instructed Suzanne to tell Beth everything he did to her. She could barely get the words out and was so distressed that Bill took over. Beth listened as he divulged his gruesome killings. She screamed and he grabbed his gun and held it to her forehead, asking her if she wanted to die. Then he took his new tape recorder and sat at the kitchen table to record his confession. When he was done, he let Suzanne go to her room, where she laid in her bed and hid. He didn't leave until the morning and threatened to kill many more people if the women went to the police. Suzanne put her clothes from the townhouse in a plastic bag in her closet, which she knew could be used for evidence if Bill killed her. The pair didn't dare leave the apartment and spent the day trying to devise a plan. Eventually, Bill returned. He was contemplating suicide and made a call to David Grund, who he said was his friend as well as a newscaster. David didn't answer, so he left a voice message telling him that he had a story that he wouldn't want to miss. He told the girls that they could invite a male friend over if that would make them more comfortable. They called David Kane, but couldn't tell him what he was about to walk into. When he entered the apartment, Bill was bearing his gun, telling him it was his choice to stay with the women or leave. He stayed. Then Bill played the tape for David. At midnight, Bill decided that they should all go out to a strip club. They stayed until close, and he kept buying them drinks, wanting them to have a good time. In the morning, he called David Grund again, who didn't believe him. Bill put Suzanne on the phone to confirm the story. He said those three were just the beginning, and he had a list of at least 30 people he planned to kill. When Bill hung up the phone, he told his three hostages it was time for him to leave. He was either going to go back to the townhouse or find a secluded spot where he'd kill himself. If they followed his instructions, then he'd spare their lives. With the Lucky Land Slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. This is your captain speaking. Uh, we've got clear runway and the weather's fine, but we're just going to circle up here a while and uh, get lucky. No, no, nothing like that. It's just these cash prizes add up quick. So I suggest you sit back, keep your tray table upright, and start getting lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Suzanne had to call 911 and tell the police exactly what had happened. They would sit outside and wait for the police, and Betty would give them her pager when they arrived and let them know when to call him. When the police arrived, Suzanne and Betty were so traumatized that they could barely talk to them. Once officers deciphered the grave situation, they called the Jefferson County Sheriff's Office to report a homicide where three victims were killed. 
One victim witnessed the scene and was raped repeatedly, and the suspect was still at large. While the police were learning about the killer, they received a welfare check for Rebecca Holburton. She never turned up at her new job, which she was supposed to start the Monday after she was killed. There was no sign of her on Tuesday or Wednesday either. Her co-workers knew something was wrong. Deputy Michael Burgess was sent to her house. A welfare check was routine and probably wouldn't take long. He rang the doorbell and knocked, but nobody answered. Her windows were covered in paper as though she was painting. He climbed over the backyard fence where he found a door that was unlocked. As he opened the door slightly, he called inside, but there was no response. He pushed it open a bit farther and went inside. In the poorly lit room that Bill referred to as his mortuary were two decomposing bodies next to the fireplace and another one duct-taped to a chair. The deputy went outside and called for backup. Authorities arrived on scene quickly and Suzanne and Beth were taken in for interviews. It was a delicate operation when they finally paged Bill. Either he would make a full confession and surrender or he'd go on a killing spree. He returned the page from his cell phone and gave an hour-long monologue to Jefferson County Sheriff's Investigator Cheryl Zimmerman. After rambling for a few minutes, he requested a public defender. An attorney would have told him to stop speaking to investigators and police couldn't risk that. Deputy District Attorney Mark Potler handed Zimmerman a note while she was talking to Bill, instructing her to let him know that a public defender would be available soon. Zimmerman passed the phone to the DA, who warned Bill of the severity of the case. Bill was not perturbed. In fact, he was almost flattered and told Bill Potler that he would be one of the most dangerous people they'd ever encountered. Authorities planned to meet Bill in the parking lot of a department store. Within seconds of Bill pulling up in Rebecca's car, the SWAT team had him cornered, forcing him to the ground at gunpoint. Inside the car were a loaded handgun, a shotgun, ammunition, and a bunch of items belonging to Candace Walters and Rebecca Holburton. Bill was enamored with the media frenzy that followed him and happily spoke to reporters. He told one reporter that other bodies hadn't been found yet, but refused to give further details. His attorney, Jim Aber, wanted him to stop talking about his crimes and tried to steer him away from pleading guilty. Bill responded to this by firing him on public television. Police were under pressure to find Bill's other victims, but they had no leads. Their attention turned to the victims that they knew about. Although people like Rebecca's ex-husband spoke of her warmly, describing her as a kind person, the media seemed to be looking for something more sinister than that. Rebecca's neighbors pointed out that she had butcher paper on all of her windows since she moved in and didn't engage with them. The media found out about the abuse that Angela had suffered at the hands of Matt Rankin, reporting his arrests and painting her as a gullible, naive person that fell for Bill's lies. Within a few days, public perception of Rebecca, Candace, and Angela shifted from them being portrayed as innocent victims to perhaps naive women that should have left him before he could hurt them. Angela's family held a press conference expressing their love for her and the devastation that she was gone. A family friend said that Angela's only crime was trusting the wrong person, something many women who met Bill did. Investigators needed to understand what Bill's appeal to his victims was. He was not particularly attractive and in many ways pretty ordinary. 
His ex-wives gave them answers. They knew his cycles better than anyone, and they explained that he was a man who one minute was soft-spoken and kind, and the next wild and cruel. During interviews, it was clear that by the time Bill married Jennifer Tate, his appetite for sexual violence had increased dramatically. Bill continued to bask in the media attention he was receiving. At one point, he spoke about his many illegal activities, such as extortion, fraud, theft, embezzlement, and forgery. He said that Candace told Rebecca and Angela about his criminal activities, and after giving the three of them fair warning, he couldn't take it anymore and killed them. There was no doubt that Bill was guilty. He recorded himself confessing to his crimes, told multiple people about what he had done, including authorities, and had a witness, Suzanne Scott. After Bill fired Jim Aber, his next lawyer, Randy Canney, struggled to get through to his client. Randy believed that Bill was not mentally capable of standing trial and hoped that his psychiatric evaluation would reflect that. Bill's evaluation revealed that he was competent to stand trial because he understood the nature of the charges and the potential penalties if convicted. Although he was repeatedly asked if he wanted to reconsider his guilty plea, Bill refused and decided to represent himself. He kept requesting extensions to his death penalty hearing, a strange thing to do for someone that wasn't interested in fighting his charges. Still, the prosecution had an overwhelming case, and Bill's decision to represent himself meant that it was almost a guarantee that he would be sentenced to death. When the day of the death penalty hearing finally came, Bill entered the courtroom trading his blue jeans for an orange jumpsuit, a shell of the man he once was. Defendants are encouraged to wear civilian clothes in court, but he said he didn't deserve to wear anything other than his prison uniform. The shine of his golden wedding band caught the room's attention. He'd married his wealthy girlfriend, Julia, which was likely a strategic decision since being her husband meant he had access to her money. The prosecution focused on the days leading up to the murders. Rebecca was ready to leave him, Candace was sick of his lies, and Angela couldn't take it anymore. They gave the graphic details of how he slayed his victims and gave their recommendation that he be sentenced to death. When it was Bill's turn to speak, he referred to his crimes as though he wasn't the one that committed them, saying that they were some of the most horrendous acts that he had ever heard about. His role, he explained, was to tell his victims stories. The victims he described as wonderful, trusting, beautiful women. Then he changed the subject to talk about being molested as a child and moved on to make it clear that he fired his public defenders because he didn't deserve to be defended, feeling it would be too upsetting for his victims' families. Also, as though he were doing her a favor, he said he wouldn't cross-examine Suzanne Scott. She hid behind her mother and her boyfriend until it was her turn to speak. Prosecutors feared it would be too distressing for her to testify in front of Bill. She averted eye contact with him as she took the stand. People in the courtroom were visibly disgusted, and some even cried as she recounted the violence she experienced and witnessed in the townhouse. Beth Weeks testified the next day about her time being held as Bill's captive. Other witnesses were called, too. Angela's sister Tara locked eyes with him as she spoke about the abuse Bill inflicted on her sister. He couldn't hold eye contact with her and kept breaking away while tears spilled down his cheeks. Her mother, Betty, detailed the life that Angela had left behind. Sometimes, she was ready to call her daughter, momentarily forgetting that she was gone. 
both she and Tara were having vivid, violent nightmares. Angela's young children, Kayla and Kyle, were struggling with their grief, too. Kayla hugged pictures of her mother that she found around the house, and Kyle cried often. On September 29, 1999, a three-judge panel concluded that death was the only punishment strong enough for what Bill had done. Media outlets waited outside, ready to capture reactions as people left the courtroom. Victims' families met with them in a room in the courthouse where they issued a joint press release. They admonished somebody like Jim Aber for being there to oppose the death penalty and thanked the prosecutors and all the investigators. In 2002, the Supreme Court ruled that it was unconstitutional for three-judge panels to decide death penalties, handing the decision over to a jury instead. As a result, the state of Colorado revoked Bill's death sentence in 2003 and gave him three consecutive life sentences instead. Karen Wilson made it her mission to speak on behalf of Rebecca, Candace, and Angela. Bill used the best things about them, their kindness, compassion, and trusting natures, against them. William Neal tried to contest the stories that were written about him but was unsuccessful. The ability to steer the narrative was crucial for him, and while the story didn't end after he was sentenced, his control over it did. Once he went to prison, everyone would know that he was a complete and utter monster. If you're the victim of domestic abuse, please reach out to someone for help. Please talk to your local shelter, or call the National Domestic Abuse Hotline at 1-800-799-SAFE. That's 1-800-799-7233. Or you can go to thehotline.org to chat with someone online. This website is set up so that at any time, hitting the escape key twice will take you to a Google search page. That way, if your abuser is nearby, you won't get caught seeking help. If you're having feelings of harming yourself or someone else, or even just need someone to talk to, please contact your local mental health facility, call 911, or call the National Suicide Prevention Hotline by simply dialing 988 in the United States. They're available 24 hours a day, 7 days a week, and will talk to you about any mental health issue you may be facing. Thanks so much for letting me tell you this story. If you enjoyed it, subscribe on whatever platform you're on. Hit like, rate us, or leave us a comment. You can also check out our other show, Somewhere Sinister, on YouTube or anywhere that you listen to podcasts. If you'd like to support the show, check out our new merch at Teespring. The link is in the description. Thanks again, and be safe. Life's full of things we can't depend on. Like the Irish weather, predictably unpredictable. When you're cutting it fine, but the tractor in front is out for the day. No winner of this week's you-know-what. So much for Lucky 7. But some things you can depend on. Like in home heating. Emo, Jones Oil and Campus Oil are now Serta, Delivering the same warmth to your home now and into the future. For home heating you can depend on. See CERTAIreland.ie